Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. His stories are few and short, rusty coins that have lost their currency but are invaluable to the collector. This program features the work of 2018 writer Rachel Trignano. Curator Damon Arundel sat down with her for an interview. So the project I'm working on while I'm with Jack Straw in 2018 is a collection of essays that have been kind of kicking around in my head for years now. And it's a collection of essays about basically memory, truth, the telling of stories within family, and how that all changes over time Mm -hmm. based on who's telling the story, who's hearing it, how we interpret it, Mm -hmm. and how the narrative changes. And... The, the word storytelling is used in a fairly grand manner, mm-hmm. I think, these days, and which is fine. You know, storytelling shows are great, and it's such a fantastic and vulnerable way to get to know people and see dimensions of them that you normally wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my family, you know, there's nothing performative about it, and there was nothing, you know, like I said, grand about it. It's just this is how we – these are simply the things they told us. Mm-hmm. And what struck me over time is that, you know, and this is a typical thing of the – aged, is that you hear the same story mm-hmm. over and over mm-hmm. and over again. And it, it really hit me, um, I guess by the time I was in my 20s, that you still don't know these people, mm. you know, and they're giving you, not necessarily maliciously or manipulatively, but they're giving you very specific information about themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can have an intimacy and familiarity with your family and know them your entire life. I liken it in parts of my family. It's, it's like having your favorite mailman. Or something, you know? Like, I've known you since I was X years old. Mm -hmm. Um, I see you all the time. I enjoy you. Mm -hmm. I have no idea who you are, Mm. you know? And so that... uh, that's, a, that's a, a dominant feeling for me mm-hmm. with my family. And, and then as I was, you know, you remember these stories, you have these stories, and then you realize that you start misremembering them. Mm. As you might maybe retell yourself these stories, and then you realize they are maybe misremembering them. Mm-hmm. So what actually happened? What is the reality? Where, where is fact? And mm-hmm. certainly with some of these uh, family members, these stories are definitely altered to tell a better truth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's just something that's always on my mind is mm-hmm. what are we really hearing and what are we really learning mm-hmm. about people and from people. So in these stories, is it a search for the truth? Is it to just get it out there? Is it an exploration to find something? What is it about these stories specifically? I mean, there's, I think it's just wanting to know them, know mm-hmm. who they are, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, there, and there's such an odd thing that happens because, you know, when you're with, with your friends at dinner or something – or if we're just in a conversation, you know, I'm not telling you a story about something that happened when I was three. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you about what I had for breakfast or how work is going or something. Everything's very present tense, mm-hmm. perhaps future tense. That's, mm-hmm. you know, how we tend to speak with people. But there is something about family members and especially older family members. It's a lot of reminiscing, mm-hmm. a fair amount of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And it is it is kind of incredible to hear, you know, an 85-year-old man tell you about 
Brooklyn when he was two. Mm-hmm. You know, that is – it's a fascinating insight into him as well as a place and time that you could never be in. Right. So that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these stories are a, this invaluable way of really, like, getting to know things that you could never possibly understand, whether it's a person or a place or a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that when I was younger and hearing these stories for the first time, I was very hungry for that. Mm-hmm. I definitely wanted to hear that. But then as I got older, that's when the frustration kicked in. Hmm. I just want to know, like, are you sad? <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you do today? Hmm. Are you angry that your son's dead? Can we talk about that? There's, there's just no getting to know them. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that, I think that in, in exploring these stories now, it's not even about the story anymore as hmm. much as, the way it's colored, the way I see them, and mm-hmm. and the bigger concept of, of, you know, what story are we telling and what am I just making up? Mm-hmm. And when I'm that age, what stories will I be telling? Mm. Dear God. So how does your work address or challenge the status quo? And specifically because you've already brought up the term storytelling and how it's how it's this grand term, where do you see yourself within that? That's funny. I, I don't see it challenging the status quo in, in a larger context. Um, I think, if anything, it would challenge the status quo in a much more immediate sense of relationship, which is with my family. Mm. You know, you're kind of demanding to know someone in a different way. Mm. And, you know, quite a few of the people in these stories have died. You know, three out of four of my grandparents now are no longer living. And so that opportunity is gone. If anything, if there's any status quo or, or reigning paradigm that this could call to task, it would just be about how do you talk to people? Mm-hmm. How do you know each other? What do you want to know about them? Mm-hmm. And what is what is that kind of intimacy to you, especially within family? And if someone gets that from my writing and thinks like, yeah, I don't, my God, I've been talking to this human for 20, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they feel. I don't know what they mm-hmm. think. I don't know their life experience. Mm-hmm. You know, great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what comes out of it. One thing I've been feeling more and more, I'm 35 now, and you start, you know, the further out you get into <laughs> the water, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the further out you get, the more you start looking back mm-hmm. and seeing the, the whole story, not just where you are now. And I've realized uh, more recently how right I was when I was younger, especially as a teenager. Hmm. The things that I that I felt, you know, the, the principles, the value, the values that I held absolutely were correct to me. And, you know, you you enter various years of school and then relationships and jobs and you start contorting yourself and folding yourself inwards and Mm -hmm. fitting into things and you know it hurts and doesn't feel good Mm -hmm. and then you feel kind of angry but you know and usually just kind of keep going with it and and so then I you know you just kind of keep stretching back that timeline and looking back to like who were you Mm -hmm. you know are you the same now as you were like what things in your personality have stayed the same Mm -hmm. and I think that ties into the whole family storytelling thing because they tell stories about me too Mm. and thank goodness most of them are pretty funny (laughs) I was not always very well behaved but you know so little stories about my personality and you know I was really talky or I laughed a lot or Mm -hmm. silly. 
And it's just funny how th- just some things, like we're just hardwired, they don't change. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking a lot about um, how much more forgiveness we'll give children than adults. And it's you're the same person. Mm-hmm. And why would you be so much more cruel to yourself now? You know, if you saw your little self or any little self, any little person next to you, would mm-hmm. you speak to them the way you speak to yourself now? Mm-hmm. That's something that's been in my mind a lot in the last couple of years. And you have this whole little canon. You know, you are your own little canon. Mm-hmm. And remembering that and remembering to show yourself that kindness now as you would expect and want when you were very little, you know, it's all in this one person. It's all here. That wasn't fiction. And that's another part of the, the stories I'm exploring is like mm-hmm. it feels like fiction. Mm-hmm. It kind of might as well have been fiction. Mm-hmm. But it all happened. Mm-hmm. We think. We're told it happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just such a mind bend. Mm-hmm. Like that world's done. That world that was happening in New Jersey in 1987 when I'm putting clown paint on my face, that world's gone. Mm-hmm. It's done. But it's still – it's here somewhere floating mm-hmm. around. Okay, I have one final question for you. Where is the love in your writing? I, it's funny. I, I just don't think of love in my work when I think of my work. I think of kind of just hysteria. <laughs> you know, we're all just trying to cope. And a lot of what I write about is it might be death or loss or animals, things we can't understand. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's less about love and more about uh, faith. And I think, like you had asked me fairly recently, like why do I write? Mm-hmm. And I don't, like I don't fucking care why I write. That's really what it comes down to. I, I thought about it, and I hated you for making me think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was my conclusion. I don't know. I don't want to know. It's the whole making sausage thing. Like it's just happening. Mm-hmm. It's here and it's happening. Mm-hmm. And there's like a, a lovely amount of faith in that. That there is this unknown Mm -hmm. that we cannot quantify. It's not tactile. You just you don't you can't understand it. But it's it's happening. And if you can kind of embrace that and swim with it and let it manifest and let it be, Mm -hmm. and then something great can come out of it. Whether it's something you create or something you work with someone to create. And that is just yeah, there's so much faith that goes into that, into like, let's just see. What happens? This could be really, this could be something. Now we'll hear a selection from Rachel's live reading. This first story is called The Tenement Museum. It's Walter's 86th birthday. We sit at the dining room table, the insect hum and brackish air of the low country late summer lazily insisting itself against the patio doors. Under the pinkish-yellow light of the cheap chandelier lies the scattered flatware and crumpled paper napkins of a dinner that met its maker once already and then again for good. By now we have had our fill of cheap cake and weak coffee, the residuum of oily cream fillings coating our saucers and stomachs. We excel at overindulging in what should not be indulged in by people of more discerning palates. Dessert is never deserted. It is an ineluctable promise already made before the first dishes touch down. Dinner itself is relinquished in increments, 
No Thanksgiving meal is quick cold turkey. No birthday cake lasts long enough to be considered over the hill. For an austere lot not prone to sugarcoating, we were all born with mouthfuls of remarkably sweet teeth. With the last of the remorseful morsels tucked away like trophies among our gummier molars, we remain at the table in various stages of digestion. Much of our family's socializing is fed by fullness. We are held fast to one another by the granite clutch of inertia. Marcy, my nana, sits back with her hands clasped across her amphibian belly, wheezing in rhythm with the protestations of her valiant girdle. The collection of canted elbows and propped cheeks form an impressionist vignette made less impressive by the abundance of plastics and preservatives. Missing are the watery awnings and sun-dappled straw hats, the errant terrier, the subcutaneous blush bounced back in dainty glassware. In their place is a seaside of naugahyde and rowboats of chippedwood laminate, the lethargic yawnings of overfed Jews, a Renoir in polyester. In repose, the talk is turned to the sort of idle gossip that situates itself between family members like funhouse mirrors, flimsy false-backed images that contort and conflate the observer and the observed. Without any malice, meaning, or need for accuracy, they theorize about the sexuality and financial distress of cousins two or three times removed by marriage and many more times removed by geography or disinterest. Walter, my pop-op, says little about the lives of others. He sits at the table, his shaggy eyebrows drawn upward as he listens, his square fingertips pressing lightly into a deflated jowl. Less a patriarch and more a bystander, Walter was never very grand or fatherly. We are either in his home or not, and the thin omelets, newspaper shufflings, and methodical ablutions that make up his daily routine take place regardless of our whereabouts. His habits were his, and we embraced them because we had the same freedom to do what we wanted when we wanted to. No one needed to be excused from the table, but no one was asked to return either. Wordlessly, Walter gets up, a process made so arduous by arthritis that it looks almost like pantomime. We keep chatting, and when he comes back, he holds a piece of paper in his hooked hand, which he gives to the table, not to me. It has taken him ages to deliver this piece of paper, and his exhaustion arrives with him as factually as an odor. For years, his body has been in the slow process of deflating, drawing inwards upon its own folds like a map becoming more compact. I look up at the torpor that has settled around his eyes. Beneath the short sable bristle of his lashes are eyes the color of ash that sometimes act like a filter from letting a brighter light come through. When I ask him what it is, he blinks in surprise. Conversations bewilder him, even if he's the one who initiated them. Unlike the rest of us, Walter is not a talker. His voice travels a long gravelly road carrying words that creak with decades of disuse. His stories are few and short, rusty coins that have lost their currency but are invaluable to the collector. He displays them one at a time without fondness or pretense, their actuality being substance enough. I look at what he's handed me, a computer printout of a photograph, one of his childhood homes, the one on Stangle Avenue in Newark. It's grainy twice over, so blurry it looks wet. The house is humdrum, a stoic stack of boxes, as untalkative as its inhabitants. I imagine its insides based on a universal knowledge of how poor immigrants lived. Single-paned, dark-trimmed windows with sobbing glass and splinters at the sill. Hand-tatted tablecloths, dense wood, and a dimness that will always live in old rooms, even at noon. 
That's what the apartments in New York's tenement museum look like, and that's exactly what I assume every immigrant home to look like, from the uneven floorboards to the balding wallpaper. One starchy August afternoon, I took a guided tour there. On each floor, a guide indicated the elegant squalor of note. To the left are the outdoor latrines, and here you have an interior window installed to prevent asphyxiation. This was perhaps a step up from the pockmarked gelatins taken by Jacob Reese, the ones of grimy half-humans with rags tied around their heads sleeping with lung ailments six to a bed. As I bought the $25 ticket, I could hear the disapproving tisks of my dead predecessors for paying to experience the poverty that rounded their shoulders and ruined their knees all for mere pocket change. For Jews, thrift follows academic pursuit as the most enduring signifier of a person's intelligence and likelihood of success. Downstairs in the museum's bathroom, two yentas were in the stalls next to mine, speaking in familiar, conspiratorial tones about a young woman, a niece, perhaps, or more likely a friend's incompetent daughter. They were scandalized by how much gratuity she had left in a restaurant weeks before. Weeks before. It was an unreasonable but necessary amount of thrift that kept three generations of my own family in the small apartment above the family store in Newark. For half a century, they lived and nearly died in a slum at the corner of Broadway and Bloomfield. Before Walter and Marcy closed the store in the mid-1980s, I spent a fair amount of my time there with my mother and sister, hiding from the strange customers under the counter and playing with a broken cash register. One day, nostalgia got the better of my mother, as it often did, and she wanted to see the old apartment upstairs. She had lived there until she was 14, when the family moved to a more benign street two towns over. The same town I would later skulk around at 14, chain-smoking and skipping class and listening to heavy metal. For decades after they moved, a heavier metal kept people out of the family apartment. One of those standard steel gates pulled down over doorways where break-ins are more common than drop-ins. Walter unlocked the gate for us, and my mother, sister, and I ascended with a flashlight, and inexplicably with me at age three leading the way. The stairs were dark and filthy, littered with cigarette butts and clumps of things dead or shed, hair, dust, the remains of what was once fur. We came to the front door, opened it, and looked in at the remains of a ravaged home. It looked as if the furniture and walls had killed one another in a brawl. Doors were off their hinges, and everything else was knocked about at odd and incorrect angles. There was a doorway behind the living room that went into the kitchen, and I had the feeling that beyond that doorway, behind that room, wasn't the end of the building, but instead even more rooms, even more buildings, all attached to one another like a series of portals leading to more dead chaos. If we went in, I was certain we would never be able to leave. I didn't know a place could be that dark when it was still light out. We didn't go in. We glanced around, six wide eyes adjusting to stale air and havoc, to decades of abandonment in a basement. I knew in that moment, as I know now, that wasn't the way my family lived. When they lived there, it was clean, if not a bit sparse. The peppery smell of brisket cooking, the television set playing I Love Lucy. Clothes were ironed. Hair was ironed. Not at all homey, knowing Marcy, but at the very least, functional. All that was gone, though. Newark had broken in, defiled it, and made it wretched. And in the seconds we were there, that's all my mother saw. Heaps of battered chairs and broken wood, grimed in nothing we would want to touch. This was not a part of the Tenement Museum tour or its complimentary brochure. We left silently, closing the doors behind us and, for some reason, locking them, and we never returned. 
Soon after that, the store was sold, and its withered proprietors moved to the rural back roads of South Carolina, as far from Broadway and as near to the Broad River as they could get. And in that small southern house was where we sat at the dining room table, observing the miraculously long life of Walter and the piece of paper that showed to me, for the first time, the place where he had lived before I knew him. I didn't know what the inside of the house in that picture looked like. He never told me enough stories about it to help me sketch it in, and I don't know if I'd want to see the inside of it now. I look again at the photo and suddenly remember that it was through one of those modest windows that Walter hurled the family cat for eating his sister's Thanksgiving turkey. When he first told me the story, he would never embellish upon that fact, but to be fair, the act of throwing a cat out of a window doesn't need to be made more interesting than it already is. Besides, it lived. <laughs> Walter looks down at the photo with me, his gaze searching, roaming through the rooms he hasn't seen in 40 or more years. I wonder if he sees the lace curtains I place there, if he remembers how they may have billowed with a dignified pomp as he heaved the cat past them, if he watched its little body, perhaps calico or black, fall in a panicky wiggle before landing safely somehow on the ground, or was it in a shrub? When I hand the paper back to him, his eyes don't leave the photo. He stands next to me looking through impassive windows my memory can't see into or at all. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2018 curator of this program is Damon Arundel. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Alyssa Keen and Daniel Gunther. Recording engineers are Ayesha Ubiatilaka, Daniel Gunther, and Joel Maddox. Narrator is Alyssa Keen, and executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by Amy Rubin and Don Clement, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Larry Lawrence. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.